0: Have you ever wanted to play the perfect tabletop game where story beats run smoothly and there's no awkward pauses between dice rolls? Yeah, me too. But since that's impossible, I did the next best thing and novelized my Witcher tabletop game to showcase the story in its cleanest form. The result is this podcast. I'm Jacob Gerstel, and this is Tales from the Witcher. Part audiobook, part actual play, part serialized adventure, and a whole new way to vicariously enjoy tabletop games. Welcome to the world of The Witcher, where monsters roam freely and the continent is once again at war. If you were hoping to follow the plight of Geralt of Rivia, however, I'm not going to be doing that. Instead, I offer you the story of a not-so-merry band of degenerates who are making their way across the continent. So sit back, relax, and enjoy. to act otherwise. While many still argue over the griffin's origin, there are a few points that are clear to even the most uneducated peasant. With the body of a lion and the wings of an eagle, griffins are devilish fast, and can swoop down without a moment's notice to attack their prey. Griffins have an exceptional sense of smell, and can sense living creatures from furlongs off. They often toy with their prey—cows, goats, sheeps, humans—when they catch it, rending the unfortunate creature with their talons, and eating it alive, piece by piece. Finally, griffins are known to mate for life, and are fiercely protective of their territory. Anonymous. physiologus. 1. Shuffling in the Darkness. Carminiola blinked and rubbed his eyes. It was pitch black in his little one-room cottage, a gift from the villagers of Elbin. He could live there free of charge, the alderman had said, as long as he continued to treat the sick and wounded in town. More shuffling, this one closer than the last. The doctor propped himself up on his elbows. He could see a little better now, but there was no moon shining through the window, and it must have been well past midnight. Carminiola reached for the dagger on his nightstand, got out of bed, and slowly repositioned so his back was to the wall. He tried to steady his breathing. A figure leapt out of the darkness with a snarl. It barreled into Carmignola and slammed his back against the wooden wall. A picture hanging over his bed fell. The wind rushed out of Carmignola, but he managed to get his arms out in front of him and pushed back, swiping with his dagger when he was allowed some breathing room. The creature yowled, and warm blood spattered Carmignola's face. He tried to wipe it off, but only succeeded in smearing it. The creature stood on two legs and paced back and forth, ready to pounce again. Carminiola's mind raced with what it could be. He had killed dozens of monsters in his youth, but he was never one for remembering the specifics of each creature. He always thought that was the job for a witcher. The creature leapt again. Carminiola stuck his foot out and booted the creature back. Then he leapt to his feet, grabbed a match from the nightstand, struck it, and held it out. It provided just enough light to see the creature. A human woman. Eyes narrowed behind her matted and tangled hair. Bared teeth long fingernails, ragged clothes. Carminiola recognized her, though he could barely believe it. After all, he had not seen her in eight years, when they angrily split in the town of Mossrig. "'Beatrix?' Carminiola said. The woman spat and charged Carminiola again. He tried to sidestep her, but one of her flailing hands caught him in the cheek. The fingernails tore at his skin, and he felt a trickle of blood run down his jaw. "'Beatrix, it's me! Carminiola! What are you doing?' Cursed me, the woman spat. She spun on her heels and swung at Carminiola again. Her nail shredded the hem of his nightgown. You cursed me! Carminiola stepped back and nearly stumbled over the chamber pot he left near the hearth. W- what? How? Nightmares! Endless nightmares! Killing you will let me sleep! Carminiola's head spun. Here stood a woman he once loved, who he had traveled across the north with for two years hunting and killing monsters. Here stood a woman who once stayed up for two days straight to tend to him after he fell into a river and caught a fever. Here stood a woman who left him behind to hunt a bruja. And now she was cursed. By his doing? It didn't make any sense, unless… Did that bruja curse you? he stammered, trying to circle around Beatrix so he could reach the door. You cursed me! she shouted, and lunged again. Carminiola screamed and leapt away. Beatrix crashed into his workstation and collapsed underneath the beakers filled with medicine. The doctor made for the door and ran, leaving behind his clothes and his money and his equipment and his dignity, leaving behind the village of Elbin for good. 2. They rounded the final switchback and rode into the kingdom of Tamaria. Jeremiah was thankful to leave the cold, thin air behind he and his companions had spent two nights descending the Mahakam Mountains, leaving Crag Ross and the Northern Summit behind. That's not the only thing you left behind, the craftsman thought. This was true. He had also left behind a thriving little production line for his Keller repeating crossbows. The Church of the Eternal Fire had taken a stockpile, but Jeremiah still had his own personal crossbow, and more would be coming. That's not the only thing you left behind. Jeremiah gently touched his side and winced. Ezra of Nilfgaard's crossbow bolt had buried itself deeper than he thought. Two days later, and the pain hadn't abated. He was starting to worry. He told himself it was a small price to pay for his life, and that Ezra and Margaret of Kavir would have killed him if he didn't shoot first. The craftsman repeated this to himself as he rode down the mountains. His companions were not much for conversation on the descent, so Jeremiah had a lot of time to think. On the first night, when the thoughts of burying his former business partners became nearly unbearable, Jeremiah unfolded the most recent letter he received from Mother Lana of Kalmeck. He had written to her during his first week in Crag Ross, telling her of the repeating crossbow and how production was moving along. He received Mother Lana's response during his second week in the Mountain City. It was short, but full of praise for Jeremiah's ingenuity and work ethic. Jeremiah wrote back, a little less formally this time, asking her how things were in Kalmec. Her most recent letter came in a few days before Jeremiah left Crag Ross, a few days before he was forced to kill his partners. The letter read, Dear Jeremiah, I must admit I was surprised to receive another letter from you so quickly. I, perhaps foolishly, assumed you would be too busy perfecting your crossbow design to think of me. Have certainly been wrong before. Things are well in Kalmec for the moment, though I fear that will soon change. Word is that Lonkoff, the town of Undying, has been taken over by Nilfgaard. It appears the Black Cloaks heard that the hundred-year-old curse had been lifted, and decided to strike. I believe it's only a matter of time before they reach Kelmec. Colden Op-Teld, that charming Nilfgaardian emissary, seems quite pleased with himself recently. The mood is frightful in town since the Wild Hunt appeared. Lord Heyman has not regained the public's trust, which would make us easy pickings for the Nilfgaardians. Time, it seems, is running short. But perhaps I'm being too pessimistic. Who knows? We could receive a shipment of Keller repeating crossbows tomorrow and turn the tide of the war. Alas, none of us can predict the future. Please stay safe during these trying times. Remember that the eternal fire illuminates everything. Yours, Lana of Kalmak. Jeremiah had read the letter a half dozen times by this point, and his eyes always lingered on her closing. Yours. It meant nothing, he often told himself. Lana was just being polite. Jeremiah carefully folded the letter and looked to his sullen companions, poorly lit by the dying campfire. They were never the cheeriest bunch, but even Jeremiah noticed how low their spirits were. Zevo of Kavir, the unflappable witcher, seemed moodier than usual. He drew deep from a dwarven flask often. Ethramel seemed twitchier than usual, and constantly fussed over his bags. Carmaniola talked quietly to Otto the Cat and no one else. Some destined group we are, Jeremiah thought glumly. His old friend Yana had made it sound like they were meant to be together to fulfill a grand purpose, stopping Ithalin's ancient prophecy, which foretold the continent's doom by way of an eternal blizzard. But when Jeremiah looked around the camp, he only saw four sorry souls thrown together by chance and misfortune. It was a hard two days of travel. So, Jeremiah was thankful to leave the cold, thin mountain air behind. The Mohacom Mountains spat them out near a small river that snaked back as far as the craftsmen could see. They rode into untouched greenery, endless pasture that reminded Jeremiah of the Bleeding Valley. They were in Tamaria, a kingdom known for its natural beauty and abundant resources. It had fallen on hard times since the assassination of King Fultest the previous year, but his daughter, Princess Anais, was safe and ruled from Lavalette Castle, near the Pontar Valley to the north. That, of course, meant that southern Temeria was an easy conquest for Nilfgaard. Word was the Black Cloaks were marching on the kingdom's capital of Vizima at this very moment. "'Yana said Nilfgaard had conquered this part of Temeria,' Jeremiah said aloud. "'We'd best move cautiously.' "'As opposed to how we were moving before,' Ethramel scoffed. "'When you're an elf, you always move cautiously.' They rode beyond a few cow farms, following the bank of the river. A town appeared in the distance, and Jeremiah's mirth gave way to suspicion when he saw the gathering crowd outside the town's gates. Six guards stood at the entrance, with black cloaks and the sixteen-ray son of Nilfgaard embroidered on their gambesons. They were armed with long spears. The crowd was a motley collection of men and women, humans and elves and dwarves. Some were armored in plate, others clad in leather, some wearing simple tunics. Almost all of them had weapons of one kind or another. Short swords, axes, crossbows, the like. They formed a loose line, and each person spoke to a man sitting at a table next to the gate. The Nilfgaardian always wrote something down in his leather ledger and waved the person through. No one said anything as they waited in line. Jeremiah was no exception. He and his companions waited quietly and patiently for their turn. The Nilfgaardian at the table looked the four of them over with dispassion. He was a slight man, with opaque skin and close-set eyes hidden behind rimless glasses. Are you here for the hunt? he asked them. Ethramel, who had pulled a sealed letter out of his pocket, quickly put it away and nodded. Yes, that's exactly why we're here. He gestured at the group behind them. Seems to have drawn quite a crowd. So it has, the Nilfgaardian said. He flipped through the ledger in front of him. So far, 26 candidates have signed up. Please provide your names, and you can pass through. Jeremiah had heard of public hunts being held before, typically by local lords or castellans, who need a monster removed from their town, but are unable to find, or unwilling to pay, a witcher. It's good business to farm out the work and pay local, Jeremiah thought. Especially when you're an occupying force, and want to get the citizens to accept your rule. What's being hunted, Zevo said. It was the first words he had said all day. The Nilfgaardian shrugged. The Castellan will provide all of the relevant details in the town square at sunset. Please provide your names and you can pass through. My name is Valdo, Ethramel lied. Everyone else provided their names, though Carminiola did not include his new, noble last name. The Nilfgaardian wrote each one down dispassionately and motioned for them to head through the gate. Welcome, he said, to Bedzin upon Ismena. It was a modest town that sat on the bank of the river, its numbers swelled by hunters and Nilfgaardian soldiers standing guard. The townsfolk, humble Nilfgaardian farmers leading cows or traders hawking goods, moved about as if nothing was wrong. A few hunters spoke to each other in the streets. A handful of these interactions turned into arguments, but the Nilfgaardians quickly broke them up. Wouldn't suspect this town had recently been taken over by force, Carminiola mused as they rode to the stable. "'It's, dare I say, peaceful,' Zevo grunted. Jeremiah thought to say that the doctor shouldn't be fooled by the facade of peace, but decided it wasn't worth the effort. They stabled their horses and headed towards the river's rest inn. Ten hunters crowded around the bulletin board outside the modest building. They were muttering amongst themselves what they might be tasked to hunt, and how much they'd be paid for it. The hunters quieted when they saw Jeremiah and his companions approach. It wasn't hard to see why. All of them dressed like soldiers, in shiny, new mahakam plate armor. All of them bared scars on their faces, or neck, in Carminiola's case, and the craftsmen imagined they all looked a little angry after their hike down the mountain as well. The hunters made a path as the witcher walked towards the bulletin board. He studied a few pieces of parchment pinned to it and called back, a few farmers saying their livestock was carried off by a winged creature. Does it say what kind of creature? Ethramel asked. Zevo shook his head. But if it's able to pick up a cow, it may be a wyvern, or a large cockatrice. One of the hunters scoffed. It's likely exaggeration. You know how the Temerian peasants are. What if it's a dragon? Another hunter cut in. Unlikely, Zevo said. Dragons are rare enough as it is, and it's hard to mistake them, no matter how fast they swoop in to eat your livestock. Zevo turned to the hunters and scowled. But whatever the creature is, it's best left to a professional. I don't need two-bit trappers getting in my way. It'd be best for you all if you returned home. The hunters were silent, but they stood their ground. Their eyes hardened and their jaws were set, and they outnumbered them more than two to one. Jeremiah stepped in and directed Zevo towards the inn. Let's go in and get you a drink, eh? Some rest might do us some good. Zevo spat and let himself be led inside. The inn was crowded with hunters, and music filled the air. Jeremiah closed the door and hissed, What the plowing hell are you doing? You trying to get us killed? These hunters will get in my way. And they see you getting in the way of their meal ticket. Hungry men do foolish things. Best let it lie, and what the plowing hell is that ballad? It sounds so familiar. Carminula chuckled and said, You won't believe it. Jeremiah recognized the troubadour instantly he had sandy blonde hair and wore colorful pantaloons. He strummed on his lute and sang about the tragedy of the wizard Signet and his committee. Well, I'll be fucked, Jeremiah said. Arthur of Garamore. They had crossed paths with Arthur back in Loncoff, the town of Undying. He had insisted on accompanying them and played a small part in lifting the curse. Not that Jeremiah would know that listening to the ballad, in which Arthur grossly exaggerated his own importance— to where he was the main character instead of a bit player. Just what we need, Zevo muttered. He pushed towards the bar and ordered a drink. Jeremiah watched the Witcher stumble over to an occupied table. He growled something at the drinkers and scared them away. The Witcher took a seat alone. I know it's not my place to question a man and his drinking habits, Ethermel said to Jeremiah, but I'm concerned about our companion. Just what did Isabel say to him before she left? Jeremiah didn't know, but he could hazard a guess. The witcher was, of course, quiet on the subject, but insisted that he was now under Jeremiah's employ as a bodyguard and would do what was asked of him, as long as he was paid. Jeremiah had not exercised his newfound power yet, but knew he would if he needed to. I think, Jeremiah said after some consideration, he had his heart broken. Carminiola laughed at the thought. Come now, Zevo. Witchers don't have feelings like that. How can he have his heart broken over a woman he hadn't seen in decades? Jeremiah thought of Lana's last letter, and decided it was better not to answer. That'll do it for this episode of Tales from the Witcher. This podcast is written and produced by Jacob Gerstel. The Witcher novels are by Andrzej Sapkowski, The Witcher games are by CD Projekt Red, and The Witcher Tabletop RPG is by R. Talsorian Games. The music is by Eric Matias at soundimage.org. Be sure to leave a rating and a review, and to spread the word of this podcast far and wide. You can follow the podcast at Tales Witcher Pod on X, or at talesfromthewitcher.buzzsprout.com. Thanks again for listening, and I'll see you again next week.